Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, next week the government will decide whether to approve the Trans Mountain Pipeline or not and Indigenous communities' involvement in it. Are we getting the message when it comes to food packaging? Are you willing to pay more for less packaging to save the environment? And memorials around the world are celebrating the 75th anniversary of D-Day. We give you ours. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, next week the government will... uh, will, uh, the uh, government will decide whether to approve the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension. And if it gets the green light, it's most likely in going to invite bids from the private sector. And several Indigenous-led groups have emerged to purchase significant interests in the project. Would this help relations? And would it get the pipeline built? Is this an answer? Uh, let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analyst with GasBuddy.com. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, good to be here on such a great day, 75th anniversary. It is It is something. We uh, just had at 1210 today, they did a flyby uh, with a, a B-29, uh, the Dakota, the Lancaster, and a few other seven in total aircraft over the Canadian Open, which, of course, circled around Hamilton at about 1210 wow. today. So uh, a thunderous sound and lots of Hamiltonians <laughs> looking yeah. up, that's for sure. Yeah, no, uh, it brings back memories of my good friend, uh, Private Jan DeVries, one of the first... Uh, the Canadian First Parachute Battalion, who uh, landed there, uh, well, he's uh, he's there just a, la- a little after midnight on uh, mm. this morning, June 6th, and so uh, great history, um, and through that, uh, I guess when I served as a member of Parliament, a great time, a lot of those uh, heroes were still with us, and so... Uh, I'm thinking a lot about them today, and I think the rest of the country uh, is doing the same, thankfully. It, it, it was interesting on the news watching last night. A couple of old guys actually went up and, and did the jump again, yeah, strapped uh, to uh, to others, which I thought, my goodness, in their 90s, that's yeah. something. Yeah, they did it in the, at the 50th anniversary. Many of them that uh, were able to do that. Some were able to get back to Holland as well. And, yeah. uh, of course, our troops are very well treated there as well. But, uh, yeah, all in all, uh, a great history and uh, thankfully not forgotten. All right, uh, moving on, uh, uh, an interesting column in the National Post today. John Iveson, Indigenous bids for Trans Mountain offer reconciliation through economic development. Is this, how do you feel about all of this? Is this a green light? Can this work? I think it it can work. I think it has to work. Um, And I think it's probably one of the main thrusts of why, uh, you know, energy development and stewardship uh, can go hand in hand with uh, our First Nations. I I've always uh, sensed that this is certainly a, a very positive way of proceeding, uh, and I don't think there are many Canadians who would object to it, provided, of course, uh, it, it gets done. And, uh, you know, apart from the fact that it wouldn't be seen as simply, uh, you know, uh, giving it to someone else who can do it more more, more correctly than others, I think this is really uh, answers two issues. I think uh, very fundamentally, one, the need, the absolute need to get the pipeline built, the second part, to also have uh, Indigenous people as uh, direct partners in uh, making this thing happen. And, of course, uh, I think that would probably resolve some of the obstacles we've seen uh, in this uh, pipeline venture up to now. It belongs to the Canadian people, uh, and I think there would be uh, certainly a strong sense that however it is built, this might be the best of all outcomes. Uh, Dan, uh, I'm playing the other side of this. We hear so much about uh, from opponents of this pipeline that it's the Indigenous community that does not want this built. So why would they want to own it? Well, I think it's only certain members within the Indigenous community that say they don't want it, but let them resolve that among themselves. And, of course, that's not going to be an easy uh, thing to, uh, to, to accomplish. Uh, but given the opportunity, I think uh, there would be a general consensus uh, around the idea that the pipeline itself is not contributing to, in any way, shape, or form, harm uh, to the environment or, to that matter, uh, because it is a twinning of the pipeline. In other words, we're not building a whole new, no. going into a forest and removing uh, thousands of acres of uh, pristine land. It's, it's going to be laid laterally to the, the, the existing pipeline. So it really makes the argument... Uh, rather pedantical. My interest here is to make sure that um, you know there is uh, a greater uh, involvement, uh, as there has been consultation. Widely speaking, has involved indigenous groups, uh, even those who are on the outside, who have no direct connection to this, who are opposing it. As far as I know, uh, 
those uh, groups along the pipeline have always been in support of this particular proposal. And so, mm. yes, you're going to find one out of 100, but, you know, the uh, the good of the many comes before the interest of the few. I don't want to sound uh, pedantic or utilitarian on this, but the reality is that uh, enough is enough. And I think among Indigenous, uh, we've heard a lot from those who don't like it, but we haven't heard from the vast majority who do and who are badly affected by the move not just to kill this pipeline, but also the Northern Gateway, the Energy East, uh, the uh, the uh, Keystone XL. These are all very important uh, public projects, and they do uh, lead to potential long-term uh, positives for all communities involved. And I think uh, our First Nations would be among the first to recognize and have done so, you know, you know in the majority, not perhaps unanimously. But, I mean, if we're going to do things by unanimity in this country, we wouldn't be a country. Uh, will the debate just move from one group to another? Will this, um, now that, you know, we we, we try to put a, a consortium of Indigenous communities together, will the battles that they have within each other keep, delay this just as much as what we're seeing now? Well, it's not the only proposal that's there. I mean, there are other uh, proposals uh, that are talking both LNG and gas and oil uh, across uh, areas. That's one of the reasons, of course, that I think the Senate rightly rejected uh, Bill C-69, of course, the uh, banning of uh, of oil tankers uh, in certain areas uh, within the B.C. coast. Um, There's obviously not just this particular project, but many others that I think should invite as direct partners uh, those uh, on whose lands this is affected and who could have a lot to do with and a lot of greater say in terms of having, having these things done. I think you'd find also that the, uh, the discourse would change in the country dramatically, um, as opposed to, you know, just a bunch of corporations coming in wanting to build a pipeline and having multinational, you know, eco activists uh, who are very well funded uh, coming out and, uh, and opposing it. Uh, this time you have a much harder constituency to, to oppose. And uh, again, I, as I said earlier, while I don't think the indigenous communities speak with one voice, uh, there are many. Obviously, uh, there is a federation within within a good number. Uh, you know, the fact is that this would be extremely beneficial to them. I think they recognize that this is an opportunity uh, that could uh, potentially see uh, really a uh, flattening of the differences uh, that exist across the country. It would certainly, uh, I think, move towards getting us a lot closer to getting at least a pipeline built, which, by the way, we desperately need. Uh, I see this morning some of the headlines, uh, what I call cheerleaders, uh, among some uh, suggesting, oh, it's not so bad that we, you know, we still have a trade deficit. At least we've sort of, you know, narrowed it a little bit. My goodness, you have an economy in the United States that is on fire and we still can't manage to get a trade surplus. Uh, so, you know, getting our oil sold in proper volumes uh, is going to be important for the country. Unless, of course, Canadians want to continue to either languish in debt or uh, continue down the road of uh, having to choose between what programs we want to cut. Because that's the reality of what uh, environmental activists uh, are really pushing, the destruction of our ability to raise the kind of uh, revenue uh, and to uh, export our main resources to markets that uh, quite are quite willing to buy them. Um, can uh, the owner of the pipeline control the flow of the pipeline in any way? Uh, again, uh, what about the fear of putting too much control in someone's hands? Well, the control would have to be subject to NEB laws. The National Energy Board makes the decision as to what is in there uh, uh, and who can control what volumes. You can't suddenly turn around and say, I'm going to, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a shipper, I'm going to sit, decide to shut the thing down. Uh, something like that would have uh, the federal government using its uh, its powers, as it has done in the past, uh, to be able to override any attempt at uh, at undermining something that is very clearly in the national interest. Uh, does it matter how much of a share? Would they control all of it? Would it be divided up between indigenous groups? I guess that depends on what the final deal is. Yeah, I wouldn't know what that looks like, but I... I think the concept itself is not just a new one, but it's one that I think has now advanced to the point where um, we can we can safely and confidently say that uh, it's a viable uh, option in terms of the next steps ahead. But we need to get the federal government uh, next week on the 18th to say, yes, this is going ahead and this is how we see it proceeding. And uh, shovels have to be in the ground as soon as possible. I mean, the fact is the federal government holds all the cards here. It can delegate 
uh, the responsibility. It can partner with anybody it wants to, but I think it's very clear that it's time to fish or cut bait. And my goodness, we've been cutting bait now for the past four or five years. This pipeline should have been built three years ago. So the decision that's coming up in the next week or so, um, uh, uh, will that then give permission to uh, to move forward? Or when that decision is made, will we know who is going to own it? Well, we know the federal government owns it. No, but who's going to buy it? Sorry. Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think the federal So you don't expect them to come up next week and not only announce, yes, we're going to buy it, but we're also offering this to the indigenous community and the deals here and da 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 da. Like, is well, this all? Is this already being done in the back rooms? Yeah, I think it has been done in the back rooms. Uh, but you know what that looks like uh, really remains uh, something to be seen, and I guess all will be revealed next week when the federal government has to come out and make a, a decision after delaying the decision earlier. Uh, it, it has to satisfy what the federal court had asked it to do. Um, and, you know, no doubt it'll be subject to uh, a series of unending legal challenges, all of which they'll have to swat down. But the reality is that uh, the time to uh, negotiate, the time to, you know, to bend over backwards is really over. Unless, of course, you, you don't even want this pipeline built. Uh, the federal government has spent a significant amount of credibility and capital on this. If this fails uh, and does not proceed uh Full stop next week, um, the federal liberals will be responsible for, uh, in my view, creating uh, an untenable situation where uh, they have allowed every Tom, Dick and Harry organization out there to block it. And at the end of the day, uh, when you put all your eggs in one basket, you can't even get that to work. Uh, then uh, the fault clearly comes on you at a time when you're heading to a federal election. Any reason to believe it won't be approved next week? You know, I, I like I what what you, stands in the way. I mean, yeah, wh- no, I, I think uh, this will be considered, uh, you know, a dithering 101 if they do that. Yeah. Uh, and I think they, the federal liberals had best realized uh, that they have to, uh, you know, they have to uh, make uh, post haste, get this thing moving. I would expect that uh, the, the construction will, will resume this summer. Uh, if it doesn't, then I think clearly. They don't want any pipeline built. They're more willing to, uh, you know, bend over to uh, accommodate the uh, uh, the activists who are in minority in this country and who do not want people to understand there's a direct relationship between not being able to sell oil and our standard of living. I want to remind every person here, Scott, on your show that's listening, that when they find they're working harder and making less, one of the principal reasons for that is our Canadian dollar. You know, it takes 134 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar today. Mm-hmm. That's a one-third hit to our purchasing power, which means that we're all a lot poorer. And much of that, not because of trade or because of, you know, indebtedness, which has one is one of the cause of the other, but because we're our number one export is being, uh, is being blocked. And investments in the order of 200 of billions of dollars have fled this country. People have cashed out their Canadian dollars and bought foreign assets with them. That is one of the main reasons why you have such a weak Canadian dollar and why you and I and everybody else are working harder for less today. So if this is approved next week, um, uh, what happens next? Will there be Indigenous protests? Or well, I'm sure there will, will. will the plan be, and, and another question, if there, if there is a plan announced next week that there's uh, an Indigenous group that's going to be a part of this, um, will there still be protests? Well, I'm sure there will still be protests. What there hasn't been the presence of is the willingness of the uh, of authorities to say the law of the land prevails. Uh, and it won't be a question of you, hey, appearing before a judge and a slap on the wrist. You're going to jail. You're staying there until this thing's finished. I mean, I can't make those decisions, but I would expect that the federal government sooner or later has to stand up and defend its uh, its decisions. And uh, look, the people who are not happy with her are going to support your government anyways. So if it comes down to a political calculus, it's a pretty stupid one, in my view. Uh, you either say you're going to do this or you don't. Now, remember, they shut down uh, all travel by and banned tankers in the B.C. coast. Mm-hmm. They shut down the Energy East. They shut down the Northern Gateway. And now they have a problem with even the Line 3 that they approved because it won't be ready for another year and a half or two years because there's protests on the American side. Uh, Keystone probably won't happen. This is really the only shot you've got. And if you can't recognize and be prepared to defend even that, then you might as well just fold your cards and uh, hand it over to uh, the 10 or 11% of people out there who think that we, uh, 
uh, we uh, we have a society that can run on windmills and uh, and and, and uh, photovoltaics, um, and of course, uh, I'll have our cars all run on pixie dust. <laughs> Uh, it seems uh, we we know the obvious uh, uh, benefits uh, of this pipeline, but it seems that even Energy East is is even more important. Why is there any way these discussions would ever reopen? Well, you know the country uh, has lost you know billions of dollars. I estimate two hundred billion uh, in investments. People pulled up pulled their stakes out of Canada, and there's a number of reasons for that. We've we're importing about five, five and a half billion dollars worth of oil every year into Canada. Uh, you know, I can't see how something like this is sustainable in an environment where every other country wants to make sure it backs its energy winners. And that doesn't mean saying fossil fuels are going to burn a lot more. It means as one of the few countries that has uh, demonstrated, you know, responsible stewardship of the environment when it comes to extraction and, and use of our fossil fuels, and will continue to do so. I mean, we uh, we really have to uh, stop beating ourselves up as a country and allowing a certain group of people in this country to uh, to suggest that somehow we are big polluters and big emitters. Uh, I'll take what we've done in this country uh, in terms of pres- preservation of the resources that we have and the way in which we extract compared to, say, our, our friends from the south of the border, the Americans, who are wasting in the Permian Basin you know, millions of cubic feet, billions of cubic feet of natural gas so that they can get to their shale. That's all wonderful, but uh, you know, let's let's you know rather than pointing fingers and saying we're the ones to blame, we're not doing too half bad, and we do need to make sure that we have a national uh, energy uh, strategy. And I, I you know, I, I hear one party, uh, Mr. Shear's party, the Conservatives, an interesting plan of an energy corridor for yeah. all forms of energy yeah. from coast to coast. That makes absolute sense. It, it does. It, it harkens back to the days in which we built a national railway yeah. to create this country and sustain it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, if that gets legs and uh, if that's if that becomes interest moving forward. Because again, it j- just like the the gate, uh, the energy east, it just seems common sense to have something that runs from east to west across the country. It does, and the alternative, of course, is that we we wither, and I don't think that that's on the table. But I got to tell people that uh, you know your government here federally has incurred eighty billion dollars in additional debt. And to pay that back on the next generation is far more costly than the alarmists that are suggesting somehow the sky is falling. And that will all be gone in 12 years. Dan McTagg's been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, AnalystGasBuddy.com. Next week, the government will decide whether to approve the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And if it gets the green light, uh, who's going to own it? Several Indigenous groups have uh, shown interest. Dan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we talked uh, earlier on this week about packaging and garbage and garbage and you know, I think this came to light even more when uh, the Philippines uh, president started uh, yelling at us for uh, a whole pile of containers that were shipped down there supposedly with uh, with recyclable material that they could use and 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 turn into other products, but uh, the containers that got down there were were contaminated with real garbage, so uh, they couldn't use the stuff. And of course, on the way back now, uh, and as well to add to that, there's a lot of countries out there that aren't taking certain plastics anymore that we would once ship our stuff to, uh, because they just don't have the need for it anymore, and are finding other sources, other ways of of getting their raw materials. So obviously this message, uh, it's out there. Is it resonating with people? A, a new study says that uh, we're into cutting the, uh, down the packaging. You're seeing more and more people going to the grocery store with their own bags and this sort of thing. Uh, but we don't want to pay a premium for the alternatives. To which my question is, I can see in some, in some situations where uh, we need an alternative, but do we really need the packaging, period? Uh, do we need the packaging to the the extent that we use it? Did we have this problem 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? 
So have the products become more fragile? Do they, do they need more packaging? Uh, where do you draw the line between uh, the packaging that's needed in order to get the product to market during shipping so it doesn't get dinged up, or to preserve the product in some way if it's a perishable food or, or something that, that needs to be sealed? All of that obviously will dictate the packaging. But then what happens beyond that? How much of it is done for marketing purposes, for promotion purposes, uh, for convenience purposes? Uh, it, it's an interesting dilemma to be in. Let's bring in Sylvain Charlebois, lead researcher and professor at Dalhousie University, and with us now. Sylvain, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So Dalhousie involved in this survey. So people want to be green, but we just don't want to pay for it. <laughs> sort of. Um, well, I think what we wanted to do first was to, is to, is to, was to basically know whether or not Canadians are concerned about plastics and uh, uh, to what extent. And so the answer, of course, to the first question is yes, absolutely, without a doubt. I think Canadians are not only concerned about the use of plastics in the food industry, but they're expecting uh, government and the industry to, uh, to address this issue. That's one thing. But, of course, we were expecting that response. And now that's why we went a little bit further down the road, and we wanted to know whether or not people were willing to pay a premium uh, for that environmental factor, uh, even if now the environmental factor trumps food safety. And the answer is, unfortunately, no. Hmm. So uh, is this about changing packaging, or is it about using less packaging? It depends uh, what solution uh, you would consider. Actually, we did ask Canadians what solution they would prefer, and it seems as though a different package or a different packaging would be appropriate. So compostable packaging is something that Canadians really value. Why? Because, well, it's convenient. It's not going to change their lives. They can keep on buying what they're buying, and uh, they just, once they're done with their package, they can throw it on in the compost instead of the garbage can. The problem is that most of these solutions are 20 to 50% more expensive than the regular than regular plastic. So you kind of have that problem right now. Uh, did we have this problem 30, 40, 50 years ago? H- has it always been there? Now we just have more? Or are we using more packaging now? Uh, well... Food safety regulations are uh, a, a focus in our study uh, because over the years, over the last 30 years, we only increased the number of regulations. And those regulations, of course, has led to the use of more plastics. We don't realize it, but I suspect that most of your listeners uh, underappreciate the role of plastics in the food industry. Plastics have really kept prices food prices lower, has reduced the amount of waste within the supply chain, but of course it also has kept food safe. So, of course, I'm not suggesting that the current course is is sustainable, but still, replacement plastic is not an easy thing to do. Hmm. Uh, and is, is the food industry one of those industries where perhaps we can be more lenient on the use of plastics because uh, 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 not only of the cause, but just of the safety issues? I think the one thing that hasn't been happening in Canada is to harmonize our food safety regulations with our uh, environmental obligations. Uh, when you go to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, uh, they, op- they, they, of course, talk about risk management and protecting the public, but they don't necessarily keep in mind uh, the environmental impact of whatever decisions they make or whatever rules they're trying to implement. And this is something that I think Canadians are expecting to change. Cause, or else, like right now, we're implementing the Safe Food for Canadian Act, and there are new regulations around traceability, lot numbers. It's hard to apply lot numbers on all of the products in the store without, without plastic. So it's, right. it's hard to see how industry will use less plastic uh, uh, rather than more. Doesn't and, and, and at the end of the day, is safety not more important than pollution? I don't know. Is it? How do you balance this? 
this is where we need to go. I think uh, we need to strike a, a balance there that actually will be acceptable for for consumers, industry. I mean, let's face it, two years ago, we barely talked about plastic. It really came violently as a surprise for everyone, including governments and the industry. So, did this I start? Actually, did this start with uh, the Philippine president and the containers coming back? How much of an impact did that have? It started. It started a little bit before NGOs. Lots of NGOs have done a great job uh, influencing public opinion by by presenting some really powerful, disturbing me- images of oceans. Fishes, um, sharks, yeah. uh, whales—you name it. I mean, turtles—they—they—they've been really proactive, uh, and that's probably what has changed. And of course, since then, uh, you've seen the Philippines, Malaysia going after Canada, and that's why at some point I think Canadians are expecting something different now. So, can we go backwards in how we package these food products? Again, going back to what we did in the past, were the foods much less safe then? Well, I have to give some credit to Loblaw because just today they announced that they are entering a partnership with a company called The Loop. And The Loop is a, a consignment system. So, you basically would walk into a store and instead of buying a food product in a plastic package, you buy it in a reusable container. You bring it home, you eat what you need, you empty the, the container, and you bring it back to the store like it was a beer bottle, for example. That will actually reduce the amount of plastic. So it'll be interesting to see exactly uh, how things unfold over time. If only a few people will look, look into this, or does there be a whole lot of people buying uh, products that are um, packaged by the loop? Uh, is will this show will, will this see a return of glass packaging glass products and you know as you said we do glass returns for uh, uh, the beer store is it possible we could do glass returns f- for food products oh absolutely I mean the the problem though is that uh, by the time uh, you you get to offer uh, solutions like that yeah. to consumers, we're probably going to figure out something else. I just came back from a show in New Orleans in Louisiana where there were tons of new technologies offered to uh, to grocers, retailers, and most of them are compostable because it doesn't disrupt people's lives. We're, let's face it, we're busy, accidents happen, things fly out uh, because of the wind. If you have compostable packaging... Uh, then it resolves a lot of issues. The problem is cost. So yeah. that's why we went back to Canada, Canadians and asked them if they're willing to pay a premium. In the Atlantic region and BC, the answer is a little, 25 to 3%. But for the rest of Canada, it's basically between 0 and 0.5%, which is really nothing. So how, how, do you, how do you deal with that result? What, 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 how promising is that moving forward? Well, I think that, uh, that, 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 that we need to have a broader conversation about the use of plastics, why plastics actually entered our world in the first place or in the food industry in the first place, and, and allow people to understand what actually goes on within the supply chain. Because people don't, I'm not sure people understand that when you sell a cucumber in a plastic film that was harvested out of California a few days before, you need that plastic film in order to extend the shelf life of that cucumber by a few days, or yeah. else if you don't eat your cucumber, you increase the amount of food waste you generate, and it will cost you more money. And so those are things, uh, once you have that context in mind, then you can start looking at, well, okay, if we actually are to use compostable packaging or sustainable solutions, uh, it may come at a cost, but at least we're going to be saving on 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 the use of plastics, which which is really unsustainable. What is the the are we are we perhaps um, wasting time talking about the food industry in the sense that the food industry is one of those industries where safety has to come first? Uh, you know, uh, purification of the product, keeping it keeping it uh, 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 edible, all of those things. Um, 
is that going to make a big dent, or are we better to hit things like uh, plastic water bottles? Um, you know, things that things that we can do without that won't alter the industry that much. Or, you know, I guess it depends on the industry. Exactly. Well, what, I, I look only at food and agri-food, and I can tell you this: uh, we're going to have to make some compromises as consumers. Because uh, our expectations are way high, we've been really spoiled by by a, an increased an increased level of convenience. I mean, when you whenever the food industry has offered us more convenience, yeah. it has trumped two fundamental things in our lives: our health and the environment. Hmm. <laughs> We're gonna point. have to accept that. So, is there any way we can learn from the past on this? Is there anything we can bring back? Is it a case of bringing back uh, more paper and, and cardboard packaging? Um, what can we do? What are the options? Well, the paper uh, option is a good one. The problem is that paper tend, tends to uh, transport pathogens much more uh, easily than, than right. plastic. That's why plastic are material that really was desirable for the longest time when it came to food safety because you really didn't have to worry much about pathogens and allergens. Uh, Metro in Quebec decided to allow people to come in with uh, their own containers, but think about pathogens. You can't see E. coli. You can't see salmonella. Yeah. And, and with allergens, it's the same thing. And so what do you do with that? That's why the loop, I think, the solution that Loblaw is coming up with is actually much, uh, much more sound from a food safety perspective. But... Is it convenient? I don't think we're there yet. So we need to find a way to make this all convenient. So give us an idea of what that program is and how that works for the customer. I see the day when you would walk into a grocery store and you could literally eat everything on shelf, basically. So so, 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 you're looking at the day when everything, every piece of packaging will be composed, uh, uh, will be degradable. Uh, exactly. As opposed to the day when people bring in their own Tupperware and say, hey, fill me up with a pound of this or a whatever of that. That's right. And so it will cost a little bit more money. But again, food prices in Canada are very low compared to the rest of the world relative to our income. So there's, there's space there. Or give people an option between the traditional package and a compostable one. Give people a choice. If they want to pay a premium, well, why don't why don't they they're given an opportunity? That's one thing. And of course, at the end of the day, it boils down to uh, reducing the amount of plastic being used. So, so in the food industry, it's really more about the type of product, the type of packaging that you're using, uh, as opposed to actually reducing it. Like there's exactly. not there's not much there's not much we can do in the food industry to reduce packaging. It's not an overly heavily packaged industry. It's just a case it requires specific things like those plastics. Well, the naked food concept is another good one. You're selling produce with zero plastic, but you actually use solute QR codes put on produce directly. Right. So for cucumbers and cauliflower, that could work. So you can trace and track your product. But good luck with blueberries and. Strawberries. That's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, really. You put a QR code on every single item. That's that's way too labor intensive. Yeah, and you're going to need a magnifying glass to read it at the other end. <laughs> My goodness. That's, yeah. Exactly. Okay, you peel all the labels off the berries, will you, Sylvan? Get back to yeah, me no later. No problem. Anytime. Uh, yeah, Sylvan Charlebois has been with us, lead researcher and professor at Dalhousie University. Are we getting the message when it comes to packaging? Yeah, perhaps, but are we willing to pay for it? Not so much. Uh, Sylvan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Not a problem. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Earlier on today, over the Canadian Open, 1210 this afternoon, uh, the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum uh, put on a, a great show. Uh, with the and uh, the Lancaster and the B twenty nine and the Dakota leading a parade of seven uh, planes, seven aircraft that uh, that buzzed the Canadian Open. They stopped play to uh, for this uh, ceremony and this flyby, and then of course uh, went out around the escarpment and uh, circled the city. Uh, uh, what an incredible uh, an incredible tribute uh, for the seventy fifth anniversary 
of uh, D-Day. All right, let's bring in Dr. Jeff Noakes, Second World War historian with the Canadian War Museum and is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, I'm glad to be with you. Tell us about the Canadian War Museum. Well, the Canadian War Museum is Canada's national museum of military history. We're located in Ottawa, Ontario. Um, We opened um, in our new location, although it's not all that new now. It's been already, um, let's see, 14 years um, in May of 2005. So what we look at is we look at Canada's military history, so how war has shaped Canada, how Canadians have gone to war, how war has affected their lives from the earliest times to the present day, and that, of course, includes the events of 75 years ago today um, of D-Day. So give us a bit of a history lesson to those that may not know. Why is this date so significant? This date's significant because, um, as the anniversary of D-Day, it's 75 years since the Western Allies um, invaded, um, landed in France, in Normandy, Um, to uh, open another front in the war against Nazi Germany. So um, Canada takes part alongside um, major major allies like Great Britain and the United States, and there are other allied forces that are there as well. Um, And there's um, amphibious landings, so soldiers going ashore from landing craft. Some of your listeners will, of course, have seen the famous, famous footage of Canada's own North Shore Regiment from New Brunswick going ashore on D-Day, heading mm-hmm. out of the landing craft onto the beach. Yeah. There's others, and there's five of these landing beaches, and one of them is Canadian, and that's Juneau Beach, which is why you'll hear so many references to it over the last few days, and today as well, and in the days to come. Um, and there's also um, parachutists who go in, including Canadians, who are part of um, the airborne forces who land on either side of these five landing beaches stretching across the Normandy coasts. But it's also, in addition to the Army, there's the Air Force. Um, there's a tremendous, uh, there's something like 11,000 Allied aircraft um, take part in operations on June 6th alone, and they fly about 14,000 missions. And then there are literally thousands of ships in the English Channel, and these range everything. Um, some of them right, are so small you wouldn't even call them ships. They're landing craft that are not much bigger um, than the powerboats that some people might have, hmm. all the way up to battleships. And they're all acting together in this carefully planned, um, although everything does not go according to plan, of course, this carefully planned and rehearsed invasion, this landing um, in France that is going to start the liberation of Western Europe. And it's, it's an unbelievably complicated and impressive and daring um, and dangerous undertaking. And this signified more or less the beginning of the end of the Second World War. It is absolutely a major turning point in the Second World War in Europe, because before this time, there's fighting happening in the Italian campaign. It's been fighting in Italy and Sicily, and then in Italy since July of 1943, and Canadians were there. Um, Canadians are still taking part in June of 1944 in fighting in Italy. Rome has just been liberated a couple of days before the D-Day landings. Um, but that news is pretty soon, you know, is pretty soon obscured by what's happening in France. There's, of course, the Eastern Front where Germany's fighting the Soviet Union. But this is an entirely new front where the Americans and the British and the Canadians and other Allied forces um, are able to open a new front in fighting against Germany um, and in liberating occupied countries in Western Europe. So it's a major turning point in the war. You were talking about how this was uh, one of five landings uh, along the beaches of France that day. How significant was the Juno Beach landing to the rest of this? Um, it's all of the landings are significant and important, and they they all they all need to succeed. Um, some of some people listening, of course, are going to be familiar with Saving Private Ryan in Omaha Beach, which is yeah. the which is the closest run. Um, of the five beaches where for a fair part of the day the outcome is in some doubt because the Americans are landing on probably the worst of the beaches in terms of being able to get off the beach. Landing soldiers on a beach is difficult, but the real challenge is getting them off the beach. Um, Omaha Beach, of course, anyone who's visited it or seen photographs or footage, there are cliffs surrounding it. Mm-hmm. There are, well, I mean, there are you know, very steep hills and cliffs surrounding it that make it much more difficult. So troops are like impl- sitting ducks, more or less. To a certain degree, yes. Yeah. And the trick is finding the way off the beaches there. Yeah. Juno has to succeed, and the other four beach landings have to succeed, because you don't want to leave a gap in the middle of yeah. all of these 
beaches that are strung together um, where the Germans can try to force their way through back to the ocean and split up the Allied forces. It also has to succeed um, because there is effectively there's no real backup plan for D-Day. The Allies, it's an all or nothing. Um, there's no real, okay, if, if it doesn't work on June 6th, we'll try again in August. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have taken months, at the very least, to try it again. And the consequences for, of failure would have been, I mean, catastrophic, not just, not just in terms of lost lives, um, in terms of equipment lost, but in terms of morale and in terms of wondering, you know, are things going well for the Allies, even though it's 1944. So there's a tremendous amount at stake in, in these landings and in the fighting that day. Talk about how this all started in Hitler's very slow, methodical march across Europe. How at this time did, did those involved realize we're, we, this is going to take something this big? We, we have got to get everybody on board on this, all the allies. Well, it, it's, that's a very good question because part of the background to D-Day uh, is the planning about where and when the Allies are going to basically land and take the war back back into um, back into Western Europe. Because in the summer of 1940, um, Germany overruns essentially all of Western Europe in the space of a few short weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean. There's first the landings in, 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 in Norway, and then after that, of course, France and the Low Countries. Um, and uh, that changes everything. It takes France out of the war as a major ally of Great Britain. Um, and it's not until, of course, until very late in 1941 that the United States enters the war. And once the United States enters the war, one of the big questions is, okay, where, where do people act next? Um, because the Brit- to the British, it's clear that in 1942 or 1943, launching a major invasion of Northwest Europe won't work, and it takes some work to persuade the Americans of that. So the fighting first takes place in North Africa, where the British and other Allied forces are already fighting against Italian forces and German forces, and that and that doesn't end um, until essentially until ni- you know until 1942, 1943, depending on which areas in North Africa you're talking about. So there are landings in North Africa to help drive the Germans out of there. And then the next question is, okay, what now? Where now? And ultimately, the planners decide on Sicily because it's the most practicable of all the options. Some people say northern France. Some people say the south of France. Others say somewhere in Italy. And the, the decision is ultimately made to choose um, uh, ultimately made to choose Sicily. Yes, part of Italy, but it's, it's easier to get there. And that's in July of 1943. So already the war by this stage is more than, I mean, we know now it's more than halfway over. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after Sicily, okay, the Allied forces go into Italy. Um, but what next? And so ultimately the decision is made as a process of a lot of negotiating between the Allies um, and figuring out what's possible, that it will be northern France. But then the question is where in northern France? Because there are, there are multiple options. And... Um, the most obvious one, the shortest way across the English Channel, is essentially between about where Dover is on the English coast and where right. Pas-de-Calais is in France. Um, but the Germans know this, and so it's very heavily fortified. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you want to choose somewhere that's not overly fortified, but where there are perhaps the possibility of major ports nearby that you can capture, because you need these ports um, to resupply the soldiers, to resupply the air forces once they start flying off bases in the continent. And they eventually choose Normandy. Um, but that's a long process of choosing it, and it's not just where Normandy's located, but the beaches have to be right for a landing. So you can't have huge stony beaches like you do at Dieppe, for instance. Right. Um, you have to have a good tidal range, and so there's this immensely complicated and involved process of figuring out where to land um, and and how to get there. And this takes a lot of time, and it takes an unbelievable number of people um, doing the, all of the evaluations and the intelligence work. So it's not just on the spur of the moment someone pointed at a map and said, we're going to land there. Right. Wow. Um, yeah. When was it obvious to Hitler that he was losing, that he was going to fall? That's, that's another really good question, because part of it involves trying to get inside Hitler's mind. Yeah. Um, and... To a certain point, he had confidence in victory until quite, quite late in the war. Now, it wasn't realistic confidence in victory, but he himself did. And so long as Hitler is alive and in power, Germany's going to keep fighting. Um, and that, that's simplifying things rather a lot. But, but basically, because everything 
I mean, ultimately, the German military swore, swore allegiance to Hitler. They didn't swear allegiance to, you know, you know, to a figurehead of state like, you know, like you might in some other countries, or to a constitution or something else. Um, and so, as long as Hitler is alive and wants to continue fighting the war, um, it's not until quite, quite late in the war, not until 1945, if even then, in the last few weeks, that he realizes the situation is totally and completely unwinnable. But in June of 1944, he still has, or at least outwardly maintains, confidence in victory. Uh, where, where does the term D-Day come from? Um, that's actually one of the questions we get, and it's... It, it's um, it's that a lot of people have, and it's essentially it's for planning purposes. So you will talk about D-Day, and it's it's in start just for planning purposes. Um, so you can say D-Day, you know, that things are going to happen um, before D-Day and after D-Day, and so you will sometimes see references to like D minus one, which is the day before the landing, or D plus one, which is the day after. Right. And what that lets you do is it lets you plan things without having to absolutely fix the date. Right. Because it's worth remembering D-Day was originally supposed to be June 5th, and it was postponed today because of the weather forecast. Right, right. And so you can't run around one day before and suddenly rewrite every single document. I mean, right. you might be able to nowadays with a word processor, but you yeah. certainly couldn't 75 years ago. So for planning purposes, it helps to say, okay, 25 days before D-Day, so D-25, this needs to happen. Right. Um, and you'll see similar things with hours. So you'll see references to H-Hour, which is the hour the invasion's supposed to start. And so you'll see, for instance, at H-Hour minus one, you know, there's a heavy aerial bombardment that takes place. Mm -hmm. And that gives flexibility in planning. Um, it's often associated, of course, especially with the landings in Normandy. But you'll also see it having been used with respect to there are multiple amphibious landings in Italy, for instance. Mm -hmm. So it's not just used, but it's, it's come to be used and remembered as being associated with as we're talking about right now with D-Day, with June 6, 1944. So that is the, the, the secret term, the code term for the actual day of the attack. And then D-minus <laughs> or plus either way. Very, somebody, somebody explained it this way, very similar to T-minus, however, till a rocket launches. Exactly, with the right. countdown. So yeah. when you're launching, I mean, and 50 years ago this year, of course, and we're coming up on the anniversary for that, it's the first, you know, humans landing on the moon. Yeah. Right? They don't say, okay, Apollo 11 is going to take off at this specific time. Right, right. And then we calculate everything from that. They say, okay, it's ready to go, and we're going to start the countdown process. And when it's ready to go, right, it's so you're working with something that has to happen in a certain order, at a certain sequence, at certain right. times. As opposed to the time of day. Going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so you're not going to say D-Day is going to be, you know, June 6, 1944 at 6.30 in the morning. Right. You know, I mean, you know, which, which you could do, but, you know, by using D-Day and H-Hour, you could just as easily say, well, actually, it's supposed to be, you know, June 5th at 6.25 in the morning. Right. Um, so it's for planning purposes, largely. So your view on what has transpired this week and, and how this is being memorialized? Well, first of all, it's uh, the, the ceremonies are still happening. This is 75 years on. Yeah. Um, first, of, first of all, of course, we're immensely fortunate to still have veterans of the Second World War, veterans of D-Day and veterans of Normandy, um, some of whom, are, of course, are in France today, um, others of whom are in locations you know, with their Canadian across Canada. Um, it, it speaks to the continuing importance and significance of these events. I mean, not only are, are these important at the time, but they've taken on an importance for Canadians in remembering um, the Second World War and how it shaped the world and how it shaped their lives, um, and also how it affected Canada, Canadians um, at home here in Canada as well. Because, of course, by this time on June 6th, a lot of Canadians would have heard about the landings. And so some of that's going to be... 75 years ago would have been hoped that this will maybe help bring the war to an end, but combined, of course, with fear and worry about friends and family who are going to be caught up in all of this. You bring up a very but, valid point, too, Jeff. Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but what is the no response problem. once this landing happens? When does the news uh, of the success or failure, when does that start to make its way back to North America? I mean, news of the landing starts to make its way out on June 6th, obviously. It's announced that it appears... Of course, no, nobody has a smartphone in their pockets buzzing away with updates, um, but you will get broadcast on, on radio, for instance, um, or special editions of newspapers come out with the news. And, of course, it's very, you know, it's, it's very sort of simplified in saying, you know, the Allied forces have landed on, on the coasts of France. They're not giving out you know, details yeah. that might help the enemy. Um, but, of course, the Allies are also prepared for you know, announcing that things have gone very badly. 
Um, but the Canadians start hearing about this on June 6th, and of course, even if someone's not directly listening to the radio, people would certainly pick up the phone to spread the news or run to tell a neighbor or something like that. So news spreads quickly in a lot of areas. Um, in some places, you will see accounts of people having, um, especially on the set, you know, on the seventh as well, of you know church services of Thanksgiving or or of hope for this. Um, obviously, it's going to be mixed emotions because a lot of Canadians will realize that this now means that more of their friends, more of their family, um, are going to be in harm's way. Right. Um, we I remember when Remembrance Day was a day off. I'm old enough to remember that, and um, and and then it wasn't. Then there was lots of chatter for a while about whether it was significant to to uh, to to make this day significant or not. And now it appears that we're more interested in this sort of thing than we ever have been. Why is that? Is that is that because of uh, our military and its activity today? Does it depend on the state of the world uh, on on any given year? Whether uh, we're remembering. Or, or, but, but it seems that, that our our love and our and our passion and our respect for this has really grown over the years. It certainly does seem like it's increased. I mean, like you, I, I remember when Remembrance Day was a holiday in, in Ontario schools, and the times in the '80s and the '90s when there did not necessarily seem to be yeah. outwards public manifestations of really strong interest. Did Afghanistan um, change that, perhaps? Um, it, it certainly would have had an effect on it, but I think also the the passing, for instance, of the First World War generation, um, which is, of course, you know, a few years ago now, led to a, a renewed interest, I think, and also that people can find out more about how these events affected their family uh, more directly. Um, I think about here at the museum, we get so many people in touch asking questions about, well, you know, you know, Grandfather Bill or, you know, Great Aunt Etta was in the Second World War. How can I find out more about what they did? Mm. So people are, of course, still very interested in the big events, in the transforming things like D-Day, but they're also interested in how did these events affect people they knew or family or neighbors. Um, And it's so much easier to find that information in a lot of cases. So one of the ways that people engage with and are fascinated by history is through the personal, um, is the stories of, as, as we sometimes say at the museum, ordinary people in extraordinary times, mm. um, and how they experience these events, because everyone's experience is different, but seeing how somebody experienced D-Day or lived at home for six years here in Canada while the war was unfolding can really help people relate to those events. Dr. Jeff Noakes has been with us, Second World War historian, Canadian War, uh, sorry, Canadian War Museum. And if you ever get a chance to go to Ottawa, check it out. Lots of great museums in Ottawa reflecting Canada's history. Jeff, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.